guys can have a seat. Welcome this morning. It's good to see you guys. Well, we're going to be continuing on in our series this morning on a series of hard questions that we've been walking through this spring semester. We uh, talked about sex last uh, Sunday morning. You guys have returned. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the issue of life uh, this morning. Um, and I thought as you kind of tackle the issue of life, and, and actually we'll kind of go and talk through even issues of abortion and euthanasia, it's going to be a, a, another challenging morning as, as this whole semester has been. But I thought in some of the hardest questions of life, where do you go and where do you turn? Uh, for me, I thought as we raising a child, I turned to Dr. Seuss. Um, so um, some of y'all are thinking, oh, great. Now he's got a kid. He's going to have Dr. Seuss every Sunday morning for us. Uh, some of y'all are thinking, that's great. Maybe he'll read it to us this morning. Okay. Um, I kind of ran across the story of Horton Hears a Who uh, this week. And, I, and some of you guys know the story. Some of y'all maybe even saw the movie in 2008. Um, but I thought the story of Horton Hears a Who was great for our morning and great for our topic. Let me kind of refresh the story for you guys. Y'all may know this, but Horton is an elephant. He's in a jungle and begins to hear voices. He's not a psychotic out of his mind elephant. He's just hearing voices that no one else is hearing. And as he kind of searches those voices out, he begins to find that there's a little town known as Whoville and there's Who's living on a little speck of dust. So he searches this out. He finds these Who's on the speck of dust. And then the rest of the jungle and the rest of his friends in the jungle are going to begin to criticize him for hearing voices and, and arguing with him that there's no one on that speck of dust. And as he begins to argue, these voices begin to actually try to take the uh, bird and kangaroos. They begin to try to take the speck of dust away from him. And so the whole story, in a sense, is his pursuit and protection of this speck of dust and of these who's. And eventually, by the time the story of the book or the movie ends, these who's have finally made a loud enough shout. And the voices have finally had a voice that was heard. And finally, Horton is able to protect them and give them the life that they deserve. But the refrain throughout the book over and over again that Horton says to his friends in the jungle is this. A person is a person no matter how small. And it's over and over and over again. And I think that refrain in a kid's book is great for our, our morning. The idea that a person is a person no matter how small doesn't just pertain to the issue, issue of abortion, but it pertains to the issue of personhood. This idea of if God has created humanity and he's made them, in a sense, into persons, what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human person? And with personhood comes what rights and comes what privileges? And how do you define personhood? Even more so this morning, I'm going to ask, how do you find not just personhood, but how does personhood relate to value? What makes a person valuable and unique and valued not only within creation, but within and before the creator himself? That's kind of where we're going this morning. And I think the issue of personhood comes not just in children's books, but it comes even in healthcare debates today. The idea of a government-run healthcare and the idea of a government-run healthcare that's going to have limited funds. At some point, government's going to have to determine who gets healthcare and who doesn't. And the great question within that debate is this. How does government decide who's valuable and who's not? Because if not all can have health care, who gets it and for what reasons? What makes life or what makes a person valuable? That issue is also within the very center of the debate between abortion and even euthanasia. What makes life valuable and what kinds of lives are to be protected and cared for? That's kind of where we're going this morning. And really what we're going to do as we kind of open the scriptures is I'm going to ask a couple things. First of all, if, if the scriptures were, were to portray humanity, what would be the picture that you'd get? And second of all, what would scripture say about humanity? In a lot of cases, I think we're going to do it to the Bible a lot like you guys do with a yearbook. First thing you do when you get your yearbook, you do what? You look for your picture. And the second thing you do, you try to get a lot of people to say something about yourself, right? So let me take you to 1990, all right? Here is my seventh grade yearbook picture, all right? Yeah. Braces, freckles, high and tight haircut. Seventh grade was glorious, right? Uh, but if you're like me or you're like anyone in junior high, there are about three cool people and the rest of us aren't. And so you get beat down in junior high and you begin to develop a sense of, am I valuable? All right. My picture would have thought the girls would have been all over me, but they weren't. All right. And in junior high began this great issue in my life and a great insecurity that developed through high school and into college of, am I valuable? 
This issue isn't just one about abortion, government, health care. The issue is the very core of who we are. The question that we ask is this, am I valuable? Am I significant? Is there something uniquely true about me that makes me worthwhile and makes me significant? And it's at the very core of that question that plagues you and makes you wonder, am I going to get married? <laughs> is there a person in this world that thinks that spending a lifetime with me would be a good idea? Because at the core of who I am, I'm wondering, am I valuable? Am I worthwhile? And forget marriage. Maybe if some of y'all are just thinking, can I get a Friday night? All right. Will someone just spend a Friday night with me? Right. Because at the core of that, we're always thinking is this question. Am I valuable? How do you define value? How do you define worth in regards to a human person? That's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to submit to you guys that our culture has defined it in many ways. I'm going to kind of give you guys a sense of what did the scriptures say, because the scriptures have a lot to say about this idea of personhood and this idea of the value and uniqueness of human life. All right, so what does the scripture say? We're going to take you guys to the garden, Genesis 1. God tells us, verses 26 to 27 of chapter 1, we find this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female. We talked a lot about sexuality last week. We kind of hit this idea at the end of verse 27 that God created man in his image, male and female, that we said in some sense the genders related to God and and, and, and the way that we were created. What I want to ask you guys this morning is this is a topic that gets brought up a lot, but what does it mean that humanity is in the image of God? You kind of get a, a parallel statement that says according to our likeness. And so the idea is this. That we've been made in the image of God that in some sense we represent or, or can relate to God because we share in his likeness. And so the great question is, in what way do we share in the likeness of God? Because in that means by which we share in his likeness, it is that means that has set us apart from all of the other parts of the created world and that has made us unique and has made us valuable. Often what people do is in order to determine the way that we are like God, they often go and say, how are we different than animals? All right. So typically the way that people go about that issue or go about answering that question is they'll say that we are like God in a way that actually separates us from the animal kingdom. So how are you and I different than animals? All right. A couple ideas. One, some will say humans walk off the ground. Animals walk on the ground. All right. Um, I like this one. Humans shave their body, then rob the fur of animals while animals use their own fur. All right. There are certain distinctions between the animal kingdom and humanity. Um, on the flip side of that, I actually ran across a YouTube clip this week that I thought was absolutely hilarious. All right, um, it was a it was a kind of a candid camera kind of like uh, prank TV show that was going on, and basically what these this group did is they were apparently pushing forward a lip balm. All right, and what they did in order to push forward this lip balm is they did they uh, recruited a bunch of girls, and basically what they did in this test was they wanted them to test out different lip balms, and the way they did that was this: they put two male models on chairs. Uh, and they told the lady that they were going to get to kiss each of the male models in order to test the lip balm. But in order to ensure that they weren't testing and choosing based on the appearance of the men, they blindfolded the girl. All right, so that, that her decision was based entirely on the taste and the texture of the lip balm. All right, here's what happened. Some of y'all may have seen this before. As soon as the blindfold got on, and as, sure, as soon as they knew that she could not see the male models left, chimpanzees came in. All right, and then these girls with the blindfold began to make out with chimpanzees. All right. Um, now, this wasn't just a peck, all right? There was some open-mouthage. There was uh, some passionate kissing, all right? And the crazy thing was, before the blindfold came off, the host asked, how was that? The women said, great. Blindfold comes off, monkey, all right? So here's the point, all right? So maybe animals and humans dress differently, and maybe we walk differently, but apparently we don't kiss that differently, all right? Apparently, at least not according to some women, okay? So here's the issue. Maybe it's the way that men kiss. I don't know, all right? But here's the issue. Maybe we kiss the same as animals, but what separates us from the animal kingdom, all right? 
When people make that comparison, typically this is where they go. There's a few views that I'm going to give you. We're kind of going to wrestle with these and ask, is this really what makes humanity valuable and distinct in God's creation? Some of us said this, that what makes us distinct, what makes us in the image of God is that we have an ability intellectually to reason and we have ability morally, internally to determine right and wrong. Two different things that, that would separate us from the animal kingdom and that makes us in the image or in the likeness of God. So the idea is, as God is a creator and intellectual, so are we. As God has a sense of right and wrong, so do we, and so do animals not, in a sense. But if you've ever been around my puppy, she does have a sense of right and wrong, okay? And, and if you've ever been around dolphins, you know they're incredibly smart. And so the issue and the distinction between what's being made here in this view is one of just extent, one of scope. We're not that much smarter than a dolphin, all right? Um, in, in many regards, the distinction is sometimes between humanity and animals is, that, is not that large. And so if you're going to limit what makes us distinct in the image of God to just reason, intellect, and morality, then why, why do that? Especially if the difference is not that small in what would separate us from the animal kingdom. And the ramifications and, and the reasons and the implications of that kind of view are huge. Here's why. What happens to those who have reason or moral capabilities or capacities that are diminished? What about the elderly? What about those that are mentally or physically or emotionally, in a sense, handicapped in some kind of way? All of a sudden, they become dismissed and no longer unique and in the image of God. Because if the image of God is simply reason and intellect or in some kind of way, some kind of moral compass, if, if we are not that distinct from animals, and if there are some within the human race that are, in a sense, diminished in those capacities, all of a sudden, there are those within our human race to become dismissed, in a sense. In fact, I ran across a quote from a bioethicist named uh, Singer. He says this, Peter Singer, he says, The fact that a being is a human being in the sense of a member of the species Homo sapiens is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. Here's why. Here's how he defines what makes humanity valuable. He says, It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness that make a difference. Infants lack these characteristics. Killing them, therefore, cannot be equated with killing normal human beings or any other self-conscious beings. I'm not just trying to go on, and we're not going to just center on the issue of abortion this morning, okay? I'm not just trying to hit the idea of infants. What I want you guys to see is that if you define the uniqueness and the value of humanity based on some kind of capacity mentally, emotionally, or physically, you will have all of a sudden diminished a whole part of the human race that is born or has genetic issues that limit and diminish their capacities in those areas. The moment that you define the uniqueness and the value of humanity based on capacity is the moment that you have now actually neglected and passed over a huge segment of our population. That which makes us in the image of God is not something that is restricted or necessarily tied to capacity, all right? We'll keep rolling. If it's not capacity, then what is it? Some have said it's our relationship ability, our relational ability. So you look at Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That there's something within humanity that as humanity relates to one another, some have said that what makes us in the image of God is that as we relate to one another, men and women get a picture of what God is. And so the very pinnacle of all human relationships, marriage, is a great portrayal or picture of what it means to be in the image of God. I'd argue to you guys that in some sense that the image of God allows us to have relationships with one another and with God, but it is not what it means to be in the image of God. It has confused the cause for the effect. To be in the image of God means that we can relate, but it is not what makes us relate, all right? Uh, So, for example, single people. Someone who never gets married. Are they in some sense less valuable or less honored if they don't have the full scope of relationships? Again, someone who um, has some kind of physical, emotional, or even mental uh, diminished capacity then has a scope of relationships that will be far more superficial than one that can function in a full way. So again, if you define it based on relationships, again, you're going to dismiss a whole portion of humanity. 
So if it's not that, what is it? Some have said it's our ruling ability. Every time you see Genesis 1, 26, 27, other passages like it, where God talks about man being in his image, immediately following that is commands regarding ruling over the world. So in a sense, they would say that, in a sense, humanity and the, the game of life is a lot like a big game of Settlers of Catan, all right? We're just kind of moving across the world. We're just trying to rule. And what makes us like God is that we rule like God rules, all right? Uh, so there are some Settlers of Catan fans in here, all right? Uh, but also, so if it's that, then again, what happens if we don't rule well? What happens if we're not certain kinds of personalities or we're not big leaders? What happens if we uh, can't rule well, then, and since then we are less like God? Again, I think what makes us in the image of God is something that enables us to rule on behalf of God, but it is not our ruling on behalf of God that makes us in His image. Again, that's a confusion of the cause and effect. So what does it mean to be in the image of God? If it's not based on some kind of capacity, some kind of function or ability to relate, then what is it? What makes you and I distinct and honorable, no matter our capacity, no matter our function? What makes it? What makes us unique? What makes us valuable? I think ultimately what I'm going to argue, you guys, is that as human beings made in the image of God, we are bearers of God's glory. That what makes us unique as human beings is that we are bearers of God's glory. Let me kind of flesh this out for you guys, because you're going to see a a picture over and over again that that God is one who is glorious. He's created us in His image, and He's made us glorious. And as glorious ones, we then have the opportunity to rule and represent Him. Here's a connection. Revelation chapter 21. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. That in the kingdom to come, Jesus Christ is going to be ruling over it. And because he's glorious, there's no need for the sun because he's shining. And as he shines, he's ruling as well. In fact, there's a connection from Genesis all the way to Revelation that there's a connection between radiating and shining and ruling. Um, in fact, it's not just humanity and God, but it's even his creation. God made the two great lights to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Genesis 1, right before this Im- uh, discussion of humanity and his image, what you see is that the sun and the stars, as they radiate, they govern and they rule. The same is true of humanity. One of my favorite sections is Psalm 8. Um, highlight, memorize, go back to Psalm 8. I love that passage, all right? I'm going to give you guys a little part of it. Psalm 8, the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, all that you've ordained, what is man that you would take thought of him? Look at all of creation. Why is man distinct? Look at all the marvels of creation. And the psalmist says, why would you even think of man in light of all that you've created? Look at all this. This is what he says. And the son of man that you would take care for him, yet you've made him a little lower than God. And here's the deal. And you crown him with glory and majesty. What makes us in the image of God is that God has crowned humanity with glory and with honor. And that crowning of glory and honor is, is particular to humanity and distinct from all other parts of creation. And it is that sense that we've been made in his image. And as a result of being crowned with glory and honor, then it is, nat- is natural that, that we would then represent and rule for him. He says, therefore, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What makes you and I distinct is in the image of God is that you and I are bearers. We are reflectors of the very glory of God. In fact, it wasn't just in Psalm 8 that's portraying Genesis 1, but you're also going to see it in the end times. Here's Daniel 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust will awake. These everlasting life. What does it mean? What are we going to do in eternity to come? But the others to disgrace. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Daniel says, hey, in the future, a day is coming which humanity, those that have had a relationship with God, will shine brightly like the stars. God created us with glory and honor to shine and to rule. Genesis 1, Psalm 8. In in Daniel 12, what we're going to see is that one day we will be shining again, but obviously in the present, you and I are not shining. Obviously in the present, something has happened so that we are not as able to reflect and relate to God. What's happened? Genesis 3, we would know it's the fall. 
because of humanity's fall into sin, the image of God within man was defaced but not erased. All right, because of Genesis 3, because of humanity's fall into sin, you and I have all, in the image of God that was given to us, it's been defaced but it's not erased. It's as if someone came along with graffiti and just graffitied all over the image of God that was in us. And as a result, the glory, the radiating glory of God doesn't radiate from us at all. Because dust, rust, and graffiti has been put all over it. But what you're going to see from 2 Corinthians 3 and what Paul will say is what Christ is doing right now is this. For those that have trusted in him and for those that now have a relationship with him, what he's doing is he's transforming them back into glory. 2 Corinthians 3. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Paul's point is this, that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, as we know Jesus Christ, we are being transformed as we look upon him. And we are being transformed back into his image. And what does that mean? Same word, same imagery idea. Image of God in Genesis 1. Image is being transformed again, renewed in us right now. And we are being re-glorified. Right now, in a sense, as we are transformed back into the image of Jesus Christ, the graffiti is being lifted, the rust is being polished out, and you and I are beginning to shine again, but it's ever so slowly. (laughs) And it won't get completely done until the day that we're finally in the very presence of God, when he'll finish the project and we will once again completely shine. So why is it significant? Why does it matter? We'll get to some practical issues in culture and in life in a minute, but why I think it really matters most is because you and I are people at the very essence of who we are, that are insecure and they're looking and groping and looking anywhere and everywhere for value and reaffirmation. Some of you guys got it really well from your parents. Some of y'all didn't. And so you're still looking to find someone that will say that they're proud of you and someone to say that they'll love you. You're still looking romantically for someone to affirm that you are worthy, that you are valuable. And what I want to challenge you guys too, before we kind of move on is this, that unless you've looked at the cross and unless you've looked at creation, you will never find a more adequate and a more powerful testimony that you are valuable and that you are worthwhile. If you don't find it there, you're going to look everywhere else, but it will never satisfy you because at the creation and at the cross, that question got answered in the most profoundly way ever imaginable. At creation, God said in his fullness, completely fine with all that he had created, but he looked at it and said, you know what? I want to have a relationship and I want humanity to come into this. I want him to have my glory. I want him to represent me and I want him to have a relationship with me. God did not create because he was empty and he needed a friend. (laughs) He created humanity because he wanted to bestow and show his entire goodness upon humanity and humanity messed it up. And yet what God did as humanity messed it up was that God sent his own son who died on behalf of humanity to fix the problem. God so valued you that he created you. And then he so valued you that he sent his son who died on your behalf to get you restored back to shining and back into relationship to know him again. And you cannot find a more clear and a more powerful portrayal of your value and your worth in what you see at creation and what you see at the cross, what you see in the garden and what you see at Golgotha. That question got answered more powerfully than you can imagine. And you will look everywhere else, but you'll never find a more powerful response to whether you are valuable or not. Christ died on your behalf when you were a broken mess. He thought you were valuable enough in your mess and in your brokenness and in your hostility to him that he died and he paid the penalty for your sins so that you can be reconciled to him again. Not just so that your sins could be forgiven, but so that you could be restored to know him again, to begin to reflect him and begin to shine and radiate the very glory that he put upon you when he created you. That is what makes humanity valuable. It's inherent to humanity. But the reality is, unless you've seen it at the cross and you've seen it at creation, unless you've seen it at Golgotha and you saw it in the garden, the reality is you and I are going to have a big problem. Because we're going to spend the entirety of life looking everywhere else to find affirmation. And we're only going to go to those places that actually will affirm us and provide us worth and provide us a higher sense of our value. 
we're going to begin to look and have a whole blindness to those that can't affirm that and can't build that and will look away. In reality, what you're going to see, I'm going to try to show you next, is that not only does God value all, but he especially values the poor. And what I mean by that is not just those that don't have money. But what I mean by that is that our culture has said there are certain kinds of people that are valuable and there are certain kinds of people that are not. And those that are not valuable, according to our culture, are the kind of people that God constantly moves toward. And unless you've actually settled the issue with the Lord himself and said, hey, you know, what I see at creation, what I see at the cross shows me that I am valuable. And that my identity in you affirms my worth. Unless you've done that, you will always and continue to look past those that our culture has said are not valuable. And here's why. If you're always looking for worth, what you're going to begin to do is you're going to build the foundation of your worth upon people that can actually build it up. And there are a whole lot of people that can't build up the foundation of your worth and you're going to begin to bypass them and dismiss them. And so if you've seen at the creation, if you've seen at the cross that you are valuable, you're going to begin to mill and move toward those that are not valuable to reaffirm and show them the kindness and the goodness of God. And here's what happens. He especially moves toward the poor. I'm going to show this to you guys from the Old Testament. Psalm 72. Uh, For he will deliver the needy, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. God has a unique value for all of humanity because all of humanity is in his image. But you see him in the Old Testament in a very unique and almost favored way, moving toward those that have been dismissed. Why is that? Because he's moving almost counterculturally, and so it seems so out of the ordinary. In fact, you see from Amos 5 this, For I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate, therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. What is Amos saying? Saying, hey, that God is protecting you and he's a father to the fatherless. He's a help to the helpless. He gives a voice to the voiceless. He gives a face to the faceless. But you and I, because it's an evil day, stay silent on their behalf. A whole kind of group of people are being overlooked and you and I stay silent. Why is that? Why is it so evil to stay silent and why do we stay silent? Psalm 82 will kind of give us the answer. It says this, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Why do we stay silent? Because ultimately we judge completely improperly. (laughs) You and I have a a rating system on which we honor men and women that is completely different than the way that God has rated humanity. And because of that, God is moving in regard to uplift and exalt them again. And it's so countercultural to what you and I do because our culture has created a value system for humanity that is so different than what God has created. It's almost as if a, a, a car who constantly veers left. <laughs> the value system we have has an alignment issue and we constantly veer a certain direction. What is the direction that we veer to? And why do we veer that way? Uh, it's almost as if, if you were to take some judges who are judging figure skating, it's like, what, what are the criteria that they judge and use to judge figure skating? Uh, one of the questions I would ask them is not just the criteria they use, but what criteria do they use to decide to actually judge figure skating, right? Boring as anything, right? Um, <laughs> I actually heard recently that it's probably the one sport in every four years that women are far more interested in than men, right? Um, I don't understand why they would judge it, but I also don't understand how or why they judge it and how they go about judging. What are the criteria for which they judge it? And what I want to ask you guys this morning is what are the criteria by which you judge people? Because the criteria with which you judge people naturally, I will tell you this morning, um, as I kind of walk through this week, honestly, a lot of weeks I'm just putting together a talk, I'm kind of assembling ideas, trying to find some cute illustrations, um, but this has been one of the weeks where the Lord took his finger and just started prodding my chest, started poking me right between the eyes, because this is my issue. This is as much my issue as yours, that you and I have a value system which we grant to others that is so contrary to what God has done. How do we judge people? How do we cry? What is the criteria we use? Where do we go? 
Ultimately, I think we value morality based on coin. Um, James 1 will say, you should, uh, if you guys have been studying the book of James with us, he says that you should visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. What, what James will do in chapter 1 is he'll say this. He says, hey, here's what religion looks like. It is a, it is a pursuit of personal holiness, but it's also a pursuit uh, that's worldly beneficial. And I think for a lot of our churches, and especially our Bible churches like ours, we can be so doctrinally accurate, but we can be so worldly irrelevant. <laughs> we can be so personally pure, but worldly worthless. We can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And so James is going to try to put those together and hold them together because it is the responsibility that God is pursuing, but it's also the responsibility that he's given his people. I thought of a story this, this week of, of junior high. There's a kid named Flint, um, and he was probably one of the most odd social dudes you would ever meet, which in junior high is a recipe for utter disaster, right? Um, and so everyone picked on Flint. Um, I remember actually at a Disciple Now, kind of a weekend uh, church deal, as we pulled away at a house, we were talking about whatever, I don't remember, but what I do remember is this. Uh, Flint was a little tiny kid. Um, it was incredibly annoying, and he got picked on all the time. And what ended up happening in this disciple now was that Blaine, who was a, uh, another 7th grader, but was a 25-year-old in a 7th grader's body, was huge. He took Flint, and he lifted Flint up, and we walked him over. Um, I, I said we. I was there. Um, we, they walked him over, and uh, this house, these people had a, what was known as a scat mat. I don't know if you guys know what a scat mat is, but it was this little doormat that was, in a sense, either battery-operated or plugged in, and it had electricity. And what it was meant to do was to scare and discourage a cat from entering that room which the doormat was in front of. So if you walked on it with your foot, no problem, right? But if a cat, because of body weight, walked across it, he got a nice little jolt. What Blaine did to Flint was he got him upside down. The other guys pinned his arms and they made Flint kiss the doormat, all right? Not only that, but a few months later at Bible study in church again, okay? I wasn't there for this and I didn't laugh, okay? Um, But they took Flint and they put him in a TV cabinet, all right? Uh, first, top, first half of the TV cabinet, TV, last half VCR, and a lot of storage. And they took Flint and they barred him and pushed him in, all right? Then they closed the doors and put a broom in there. And for the next 30 minutes, he cried and bellowed hysterically, all right? Why is that so horrible? All you guys are looking at me. Why is that so horrible? Because you and I know that you and I have been called to be a voice for the voiceless, help for the helpless, face to the faceless. And yet what was so wrong about that was that that was the very person we should have been defending, That was the very person we should have been upholding, but instead we had gotten the complete opposite way. And it wasn't funny. That's why y'all aren't laughing. (laughs) But why is that? Why do we do that? Why do we judge so wrongly? This is why. First of all, I think coin. Um, Some will judge by this, uh, that uh, James 2, first thing James will hit is he'll say this. Why is it, uh, I've told you to visit the orphans and the widows, but what happens in your day and time is this. The rich guy comes into your church, you give him a lot of favor, you show him the best seat, but the poor person comes in and you don't even greet him. Why do you show partiality? Why do you judge differently between the rich and the poor? It's not just an issue of coin. It's not just an issue of affluence. And this is an issue of influence. Why do you give honor to those that are influential, but why do you dismiss and not give honor to those that are not influential? Why do you and I walk into a room and the first thing that we do is we look for the influential or the strategic, but dismiss the least of these? Why is that? Because ultimately, you and I assign honor based on the kinds of people that can be a benefit to us. <laughs> so it's the strategic, it's the influencer, it's the rich one. It's the one that has, that can actually be a blessing to us. But the one who does not have, the one that cannot help build us up, we move on and dismiss. But it's not just an issue of coin, but it's also an issue of countenance. Why is it that it's the pretty girl that gets all the attention? But it's not just beauty, it's not just looks that determine the way that you and I interact with people. But it's also all of the externals. The moment that you see certain set of externals, you make certain snap judgments. 
So a guy walks in with a short haircut like I did on campus and people automatically assumed when I was in college and I had a high and tight haircut that I was in the core. They saw a haircut, they concluded I was in the core, they whipped out to me and not only did they do that, but they probably then had a profile of who I was, right? Why is it the moment someone walks across campus with a certain set of letters on a t-shirt that's of a sorority, you make a, a quick snap judgment of who they are? You and I, by our very nature, whether it's t-shirts, clothes, skin colors, races, you and I make snap judgments and profile people based on externals. And God will say that's evil. It's not just the externals that we judge by, but it's also coin. It's influence and it's externals, but it's also one other thing, circumstance. You and I, and as a culture, we place value and place honor on a certain set of circumstances. Um, I don't know how to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, but in reality, I think the very foundation of a pro-choice uh, stance on abortion, uh, the very foundation of that is a desire and a belief that circumstances lead to and dictate value and honor. That if a certain set of circumstances are threatened, then I move away from the protection of a life. In fact, um, if you guys um, have heard, uh, Piper will say this, in fact, if you think about I think much of our culture has exalted the prerogative of a woman and the right of a mother over the life of a child because what's most important in this day and time is this, circumstances. So let me give you guys some statistics on abortion. Um, this is not an easy issue, which is why I was pausing, trying to figure out how to come into it, but this, this is the reality of abortion. 20% of, of pregnancies today are aborted. 40% of unplanned pregnancies today are aborted. Why is there such a difference between planned and unplanned pregnancies in the abortion rate? It's because unplanned pregnancies lead to a set of circumstances that are unfavorable that one doesn't want to have to deal with, and so abortion comes into the picture. Second of all, um, it's, it's said before that, um, you know, I think a lot of the pro-choice argument is built on an idea that it's about protecting the life and the health of a woman. I completely agree with that. I think in, in the issue or in the event that a woman or even the baby's life is at jeopardy, certain tactics and certain decisions have to be made that are difficult. But in reality, the reality of abortion statistically is this. Only 7% of abortions actually are because of health risk to a mother or to a child. Um, statistics and surveys have said of those that have actually had abortions this. 74% of abortions were because of unwanted change of life circumstances or concern over finances. Because of unwanted circumstances or concerns over finances, 74% of abortions occurred. 38% of abortions were done because a couple said, you know, I'm done with kids. They got pregnant and maybe didn't plan on it, but they said they were done with kids and so they aborted the child. For the most part, in our culture, in our day and time, what you've seen happening now is that circumstances, convenience is now the determiner for value and life and honor toward life. Um, Piper said this, every Sunday, every year he does, um, one of the beginning Sundays in January, he does a Sanctity of Life Sunday and he says this, our modern secular God-dethroning culture has endowed the will, the want of a mother, not just with sovereignty over her child, but with something vastly greater. We've endowed her will with the right and the power to create human personhood. When God is no longer the creator of human personhood, endowing it with dignity and rights in his own image, we must take that role for him, and we have vested in it the will of the mother. She now creates personhood. Our culture in our day and time says life and personhood is determined by a mother's decision. What's really fascinating, even legally, is there are 38 states that right now have laws that protect the unborn. So, for example, let's say you were to assault a pregnant woman or you were to get in a car wreck with a pregnant woman. Laws are such in 38 states, 21 of those states actually that protect unborn even to their earliest stages of conception, that would say you are liable for the death of the unborn. But what's really inconsistent in our legal code is this. While the unborn are protected uh, from a stranger assaulting them, the unborn are not protected from their mother. 
Only the mother has the right to put the end to the life of an unborn, but you and I don't. There's an inconsistency legally and logically of why does a mother have the right to decide life, but you and I don't. And the issue today, I think, is a day and time in which the voice, the, the, the one that's faceless, the one that's voiceless, is the unborn. Um, and in many regards, one of the things we're going to do this um, upcoming week uh, on Tuesday night, if you guys have been studying the book of James, you've been studying Second Timothy, we're going to actually talk through this issue on a much more practical basis. What I'm trying to do for you guys this morning is kind of provide a, a, a biblical, a theological foundation for what kind of life is valuable. How has God designed life and how has God imparted and made life dignified and valued? We're going to kind of take that in a much more practical angle and talk about abortion on Tuesday night. So if you're in our, any of our small groups on James, or if you're in any of our small groups, Second Timothy, if you're at Southwood or Anderson, all this Tuesday night we're going to be at Anderson in the Fellowship Hall. We're going to talk through the issue of abortion. If, you, if you're not in any of our small groups, we'd love for you to come. And here's what we're going to kind of do. We're going to put a few people up here. We're going to kind of speak. We're going to have a doctor who's going to speak and talk about from a medical angle, when does life begin? He's also going to speak from a professional angle, clinically, what has he seen as women have dealt with abortions and what does it look like practically, physically, and even emotionally? Also, he's going to kind of address professionally, hey, here's the, here's the pressure I face for not doing abortions. Here's what it looks like professionally in my industry. We're also going to have a couple of people speak from a couple of the pregnancy clinics here in town. Um, one from Aggie uh, Pregnancy Outreach, another from Hope Pregnancy. And for you guys to hear clinically and counseling-wise, uh, as people are wrestling with that decision or have gone different ways on it or have had abortion, what is it they have to deal with and what is the path that they have to walk in the aftermath of it? And then lastly, we're going to have a person that's actually going to share from you guys, uh, share her testimony. She's had an abortion. She's going to share that testimony and hear what God has done in the aftermath and how it's one of the most powerful testimonies I've heard. And so I'd love for you guys to come and be a part of it on Tuesday night. Um, ultimately, statistics say 40% of women are going to have an abortion in their lifetime. And if that's the case, then... The reality is either you are going to have to wrestle with it at some point yourself or you're going to have a friend that's wrestling with it. And the question is, how do you respond to them? Or how do you wrestle with it yourself? And I think this kind of seminar, this kind of panel discussion and some people that are going to be talking on it will help, I think, really give you some tracks to think through it. Um, some of y'all may be in here and you've had an abortion. And so the question is, how do I respond to that? Where do I find forgiveness? And how do I begin to heal in the aftermath of that? And I think this kind of deal will be great for you guys, whether you're individually wrestling with it or whether you have some friends that are, that are wrestling with it now or will wrestle with it one day. Um, I'd love for you guys to be a part of that Tuesday night. Um, and here's why I think it's so powerful. Uh, or here's why I think it's so important. Psalm 139. Here's what God says about the unborn. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What do you guys notice? First of all, God is the creator. That in the very womb, he is the one that's creating and designing and bringing together. Second of all, what do you guys notice? That God knew and God saw life and he saw a person even before there was formation in the womb. That even before formation, where do you think life begins? I'd say it even begins before conception. Life begins as God sees it in eternity past before formation and development has even begun. Life and personhood is something that only God portrays and God grants and God designs and God uh, allows for. Uh, one of the reasons why I think a lot of abortions are occurring and, and a huge another issue in our day, and it's kind of, I'm going to take it back to where we began, and that's this. One of the reasons why you and I make value decisions on people is based on their capacity. So we, we naturally give greater honor to those that are athletically capable of more. We give greater honor and value to those that are intellectually capable of more. We give greater honor and value to those that are able to do more, relate more, that are more accomplished. It's all about capacity, which is why 90% of those that have been diagnosed with Down syndrome uh, in a screening while they're pregnant in the womb are aborted. 
Our culture says that if one is not capable or one has diminished capacity, they're not valuable or worthy of life. The issue of euthanasia, I'll tell you, uh, not to be lighthearted, but for the longest time I really thought, why are the people talking about young people in Asia? All right, uh, I had no idea what it meant, but ultimately euthanasia is a combination of two Greek words. All right, Sorry, I'm an idiot. That's all right. It's, it's a combination of two Greek words. It means this. It means good death. The idea behind euthanasia is this, that there is a good death that you can actively pursue that's good. Why would a, a kind of death pursued, which would be murder, be good? The idea would be this, that there are certain individuals whose life and whose capacities are so diminished that their life isn't worth living. In fact, it's not worth living for you to have to care for them as well, so it's a good death on their behalf and on the world's behalf to not have to carry, carry them. And because of that, you have, in a sense, this idea of good death has become a hotly debated idea. And if life is determined not based on capacity, if life is determined and values determined not based on externals or on influence, then life is inherently good, inherently valuable, no matter the capacity. And so what do you and I do? This is, a, this is an issue in our day and time that is as far off culturally and governmentally than where the church would stand. Um, and, and in many regards, walking through a series like this, part of what we're trying to do is not be really controversial, but at some point the church can't remain silent. The church has to speak. And at times we speak very contrary to where our society is going. And so how do you and I respond? What ought our proper response to be? Let me give you guys four ideas real quick as we wrap up. And that's this. First of all, glory is in all. I want to remind you guys kind of where we started. If God has created humanity and endowed humanity with personhood, then all are glorious and all are honorable and all are valuable. No matter capacity, no matter influence, no matter externals. And that for you and I, especially if some of us have been and made decisions in the past, maybe even aborted a child, one of the things that you need to realize and need to remember is this. You were valuable. God has forgiven. God has died on behalf of all of our sins, past, present, future. It does not matter where you've been. It does not matter what you've been through. That There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. For some of us, whether we've been through difficult things in the past or not, one of the things I want to remind you all of is this, is that all are valuable, not just those external to you, but you are valuable as well. That at the creation, at the cross, God showed you that you were infinitely valuable. In the garden at Golgotha, he showed you that he, you were worthy to even be died for that you were worthy to send his own son to be separated from him and to die, uh, live a perfect life and die on your behalf. You are that valuable and you are that worthwhile. Second thing, though, is if all are worthwhile, then we ought to be the respecter of persons. Genesis 9 will say, because all are in the image of God, therefore you should not murder. Why? Because all are in the image of God. It is the rationale that prevents and prohibits murder. James will go even further in James 3 and he'll say, if all are in the image of God and all are inherently valuable and glorious, then you shouldn't even curse them. <laughs> Why should you curse and verbally abuse that which has been infinitely glorious and infinitely created for God's honor and respect? If it was infinitely glorious to God, why are you disparaging of it verbally? And that's kind of where James would go. Second thing I'd say is this, that if all are infinitely valuable, then we ought to be a respecter and a treater of persons in love because ultimately we treat people not to build ourselves up and to build the foundation of our ego. That foundation of that ego got built at the cross and therefore you and I can move toward humanity without self-serving purposes. So you and I can walk into a room and we can look for the least of these. We can look for the disadvantaged. We can look and care for those that can't do something for us. Third thing I'd say is this. You are a solution. You are part of the solution. Ultimately, I think the greatest solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are all kinds of injustices in our world. You can spend an entire lifetime working for governmental reform, but ultimately what changes hearts, what redeems and what restores humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you, as a bearer of the message of Jesus Christ, are part of the solution. But again, as James would say, it's not just about uh, doctrinal accurateness. 
personal holiness, but it's also about a worldly practical benefit as we move out and as we engage our world. And so I think you're also part of the solution that some of y'all, I know you're, you're in college now, this seems so far from the idea, but some of y'all at some point in time are going to have to consider the idea of adoption. Some of y'all, um, if you're going to uh, argue that abortion is wrong, then you have to be the kind of people that will open yourselves up and take in those that are discarded. I'll tell you, Marcy and I, as we've entered a stage in life now having a kid, as we talk about what we want in the future, we've really been challenged. We've really had to open ourselves up and say, you know, if we're really going to say that we're pro-life, then maybe we don't just uh, uh, criticize the other side, but maybe we become actual part of a solution, not just criticizing, not just protesting, but opening ourselves up and being part of a solution in a really practical way. In fact, I'll tell you guys, there are some um, that even lead worship and some that are part of our community. Ross King, for example, uh, his entire family are adopted kids. In fact, he adopts those that have been discarded, that have been not wanted. And part of the way that he actually has kids is because some have said, you know, I may not want this life, but I'm willing to give it up for adoption. And that's actually how he has a family. And so life is valuable. And there are those, and there are those of you who are in this room may need to one day consider, hey, will I take some people into my home and into my family and expand the borders of my home and my lifestyle to take in those that have been discarded? Because that is where the church is seen, and that is where God is seen on the move. And therefore, you and I in that place look so far different than the rest of the world. The last thing I'd say is this. See beyond today. Today, what you and I see is a physical body that is decaying. What you and I see today is because of the fall, diminished mental, physical, and emotional capacities. What you and I see today because of the fall are um, children born with issues, okay? You and I, because of the fall, see a lot of injustice, see a lot of fallen humanity. But if you and I only look at today, we're going to miss what God is going to do in the future. Because a day is coming when God will restore all that is diminished. He'll restore it to glory. There's a day in which he'll restore that which is physical and fallen and fragile and he'll restore it to honor, glory, and perfection. And if you and I only look at today and decree value based on what you and I see today, then you and I will live today in a way that's so different than what God would intend. Because what God sees is not just what you and I see today, but he sees a day in which all of this will be restored. Evil will be removed. Fallenness will be removed. And all of humanity, physical, emotional, spiritual, will all be restored and will radiate once again. And so if you and I see beyond today, you and I can treat and respond differently in the midst of some of this. In fact, I think it wasn't not too long ago that in our country, in our day and time, there were a group of people that saw just today. Specifically, there was not too long ago that in this very country that because of externals, because of race, because of skin color, a whole group of people were dismissed and not given personhood nor given rights. And the question was, and I've always wondered, where was the church? Where was the church in all of that? Why was it a civil war and a president that had to be the ones that are the most vocal? Where was the church in the midst of that, especially in the deep south? Where was the church? Why were they silent, absent, and disengaged? Uh, the reality, and what I've thought, though, is I thought maybe one of the things they thought was, you know, this is such a big issue. There's no way we can get our hands on it. There's no way that we can really make a practical difference. And the reality is sometimes I think you and I aren't going to necessarily overturn whole cultural values and systems. You and I aren't going to redeem it and make every governmental structure uh, justified and, and fruitful and redeemed and holy, Okay. But you and I, in the midst of our spheres of influence, can be the kind of people that begin to redeem and call back into value what God has deemed originally to have value. In the garden, he created humanity in his image. They were perfect, they were holy, they were infinitely valuable. The fall has disrupted all of that, but a day is coming when he will restore all of humanity again to shine. And the question is, will we treat humanity with regard to what's coming or with what regard to what is today? And as you and I treat humanity with regard to what is coming, you and I will look incredibly different than what you and I see today. And that's my hope for us as a church. That's my hope for you guys as you move out, not just in your classrooms, but even as you guys move out and establish families one day. What kind of family will you be? 
What kind of men and women will you be? Will you treat and will you judge based on solely externals or will you judge and see as God has seen? Um, ultimately, I think as I kind of walked through this this week for me, um, this was not a message that hit easily. This was not a message that even instantly changed me. <laughs> there were a couple scenarios this week as I was thinking of this issue that I completely looked at a couple people and I thought, this person is not valuable. <laughs> and this is the very issue and this is the very talk I was preparing all week. Okay, And so the issue is this is such a deeply rooted deal in you and I in the way that we see others. And yet it is something that God is looking to restore and change in you and I. And you can only do that as we begin to see through his eyes and see the way that he sees others. So let me pray for us and then we'll break this morning. Father, you are infinitely wise and infinitely good. that You have created and you have designed and you have moved in ways beyond our anticipation and beyond our expectation. That you look at that which has been disvalued, you look at that which has been discarded, and you see utter value and utter worth. And you move toward it to affirm it and to rise it and exalt it, Lord. And I pray that we would be the kind of church, we would be the kind of believers that would look in our day and time, and we'd look into our classes, and we'd look into our organizations, and we'd look into our friend circles and our apartment complexes, and we'd have eyes to see those that have been discarded. We'd have eyes to see those that have been dismissed, and we'd be the kind of people that would move toward them with love, with compassion, and reaffirmation. And Father, I pray for many of us that, that for us, we may need to start straight at the feet of the cross, and realizing that what, what you had done on our behalf settled our worth once and for all. That your sacrifice was sufficient for our sins, but it was also sufficient to show us that we are infinitely valuable that your death showed us that. And I pray, Lord, that we would find that in you and that you would begin to change our hearts, that you would begin to tie down our insecurities and destroy them as we see and look perfectly into your face and into your glory. And Father, I pray that as we look in our day and time and look at the injustices that are there, Lord, I pray that you give us winsomeness to know how to respond to them. I pray for many of us that judge and have judged improperly and continue to do that in whatever way we do, Lord. I pray that you'd begin to convict and to challenge us. I pray that you'd also give us a strong sense of your grace that has redeemed even that judgmental evil and that you begin to restore and begin to renew in us a new kind of value system. One that would not dismiss, one that would not disregard, but one would look for those that have been disregarded. Father, I pray that you begin to change our hearts, uh, that you begin to remove the wickedness that's there, and that you begin to give us a whole different value system, a whole different grid to see men and women, Lord. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, here's where we're going next week. Um, if it couldn't get harder, we're going to talk about the issue of homosexuality. So, Um, and then we'll kind of turn the table and kind of get to some more normal topics. So, hey, thank you guys for coming. Hopefully you guys can see us at Rudy's. We'll see you all next week.